I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles again with us this morning to Romans chapter 5. I've got some things that, um, uh, well, I want to take another look at righteousness. And um, uh, there were some things that we taught on for the last couple of weeks. We had a guest minister last uh, Sunday, uh, so it kind of interrupted our uh, d- the direction that we were going. But I want to revisit it some this morning. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 It says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now there are four different words in the Greek language that are translated if. And they all have different conditions set upon them. Paul uses all of them, but he uses one much more often than he does the others. And that's this one here. And it means since. S-I-N-C-E. In other words, it's if one thing happened and that causes something else, causes an effect, then the word if, or this Greek word that's translated if, is talking about the result of something that occurred. In verse 12 it says, Wherefore by one man's offense death reigned by one, and death by sin. And I'm, Well, let me read it. I, I've already messed it up, so let me read it. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. This is the argument that Paul is making. And his argument is, in the same way that death came upon mankind through Adam's sin, there was also a substitute or another work that brought about a different result. And that's the if that he's talking about in verse 17. So he's saying, since... Since this is the case, since one man's offense enabled death to reign by the one, much more. Now, this word, or this phrase, much more, is used a couple of times by, by Paul. He's the only one that does use it in the New Testament. And anytime you see the phrase, it means this. Every, it, uh, in every case that it's used, it always uh, is used the same way. And where it says much more, it means that there is such a difference between the one thing that's being compared to the second thing that's being compared with that it really shouldn't be in the same category. So he's saying since death reigned by one, it created a condition that brought about through the work of God something that is so far beyond the reality of death reigning by Adam's sin. It's so far beyond it even though it's the best comparison that can be made, they're really not in the same class. In other words, he's saying that the grace of God, and remember the word picture that the word grace is always uh, intended to bring, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, it's the picture of someone in great authority or great position like a king reaching down to help someone else up and to bring them to their level. That's what the word grace literally means. Now, it's translated or defined in a lot of different ways by the church. One of the uh, definitions of the word grace is unmerited favor. I really don't like that definition because when you say that, when you talk about unmerited favor, most people focus on the unmerited part. And that's not the part to be emphasized. The part to be emphasized is the favor of God. Now, granted, we don't want to think that that's because of us or because of our works or anything like that. But once you understand that, once you accept that as a given, 
then the grace of God means good things that God has done for us, and, and every good thing that he's done for us has come through Jesus. So I'll always define the grace of God as the work of Jesus, the completed work of Jesus, because it entails so much. And notice in verse 17 what he's talking about as a result of this favor of God. Since by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign. The word reign is the word rule, to have authority and to exercise it. Shall reign in life by one Christ Jesus. Now, folks, you know as well as I know that that has to mean more than just getting saved. Now, righteousness is the whole point of salvation. It's the bedrock of everything else that God planned to do and accomplish through Jesus. But, folks, how many Christians do you know of that are ruling and reigning in their own lives? Now, there's no way that we can separate righteousness from salvation in this sense. There's no way we can say, well, this person is born again and they're made righteous. This, person's not, uh, this person, even though he's born again, is not made righteous. Righteousness is salvation. It's the whole purpose of salvation. Then why does one Christian reign and the other does not? It's got to mean more than just simply being saved. Well, what is it? What's going to bring us to the place where we rule and reign in life? If Paul is inspired by the Holy Ghost to say these things and to write them to us, then it's clearly something God wants for you. The Holy Ghost wouldn't refer to something that God didn't intend. But if Paul is inspired by the Holy Ghost to write these words, then he's trying to create a roadmap for us. He's trying to create a pattern for us to come to the place where we rule and reign in our lives by Jesus Christ. Well, rule and reign how? Rule and reign over what? We certainly would have to understand that he wants us to rule and reign over the devil. He would certainly want us to rule and reign over sin. He would certainly want us to rule and reign over all the works of the devil because the Bible says, John wrote to us and said that that was the whole reason Jesus was manifested. To destroy the works of the devil. Well if he destroyed the works of the devil. He doesn't want them to reign over you then does he? No contrary to that. He would want you to rule and reign over all the works of the devil. Let me say that again. He wants you and me. To rule and reign over every work of the devil. Let's keep reading verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, talking about Adam's sin, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Well, we know that was true. We know spiritual death passed upon all men because of his sin. Even so, by the righteousness of one, Jesus, the free gift came upon all men under justification of life. Now, the word justification, anytime the word justification is used, it's really synonymous with righteousness. We were justified by the work of Jesus to enable us to become righteous. So justification, justified, justification, the just, all those are are terms that in every case that I'm aware of could be synonymous with righteousness. 
So he says, much more are following the same pattern since Adam's sin brought man into condemnation, literally spiritual death. In the same manner, the righteousness of Jesus came upon all men unto or to bring justification of life. For as by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So the work of Jesus clearly brings us to righteousness for everyone. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. In other words, it's saying, Paul tells us that the only reason that the law came into the earth is to show us we need a Savior. It was not a pattern for us to follow then or now to bring us into some right standing with God. Jesus is the one that brought us into right standing with God. That's the only purpose for the law is to show us that we couldn't do it on our own. We couldn't find our way to God by ourselves. We need a Savior. Now, folks, keep that in mind. The law was intended to reveal to us that we needed a Savior. Well, then God must have known that man would have tried to make his own way without something that was a constant reminder. And that's why the law had so many commandments, 630 commandments in the law of Moses. That's why there were so many ritual sacrifices and offerings to be made and things to be done day after day after day, every day after every day after every day. Something was required of man as a constant reminder that he couldn't make it to God on his own. That's the only reason for the law. I think that's one reason why Paul was so aghast and perplexed by so many of the churches that he started. You remember when he wrote to the Galatians. The problem with the Galatian churches is that Jews had come back from, Jewish leaders had come back from Jerusalem after Paul established these churches and tried to impose upon the people. Jesus is good, but you still need to keep the law of Moses. Paul comes back, writes him a letter and says, what are you stupid people doing? What do you think you need the law for? The law didn't bring you to God. It didn't bring you to the new birth. It didn't bring you to righteousness. Well, then what good do you think the law is going to be to help you keep, uh, uh, retain your righteousness? I think the devil tries to do the same thing to us now. But how does he do it? He tells us we're not good enough. He tells us that we need to do more. He tells us what we're doing and the position that we hold now is not sufficient. In other words, he tells us we're really not righteous. We need something more. Folks, there is nothing more that brings you to righteousness except the blood of Jesus. Let's keep reading. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, verse 21, that as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And other translations say that, recount this verse or translate this verse in a little different way. Some of them, many of them, say sin had the power of death, and that's what enabled it to reign. But righteousness has the power of the blood of Jesus to bring us into that right place with God. Turn back with me to the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 54. Now, we've always already seen in Romans chapter 5 that righteousness is the bedrock to bring us into a place of authority where we rule and reign in life. It's righteousness 
that enables us to do so. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 14, it says, In righteousness shalt thou be established. The word established means to stand firm or strong. Literally to stand upright. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Look at what righteousness does. It delivers you from oppression. It delivers you from fear. It delivers you from terror. That's what righteousness does. Well, folks, you know as well as I do that if we're walking in that, if we're walking in those results where there's no oppression that we have uh, holding us back, where there's no fear that keeps us from going forward, if there's no terror that freezes us in position wherever we are, then we certainly would be in a place to rule and reign over life. Righteousness is certainly intended for us to rule over oppression, fear, and terror. Skip down with me to verse 17. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage or inheritance of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Now notice here, it's the same concept, it's the same principle. They that receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall rule and reign in life. Well, you must be talking about ruling and reigning over every weapon that comes against us. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. He certainly wants us to reign over the condemning tongues that rise up against us. Now, certainly that would be true where man is concerned. But I think it's even more true where the accuser of the brethren concerning Satan's work is concerned. This is their inheritance. This is the inheritance of the righteous. The inheritance of the righteous is to walk free in this life from the weapons of the enemy, from the accusations of the enemy, from oppression, from terror, and from fear. This is the heritage or the inheritance of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Folks, you remember in uh, Numbers chapter 33 when Moses wanted to see God? Moses spends a lot of time in many different uh, times on many different occasions. He spends a lot of time in the presence of God. The first 40 days he spent upon the mount of God, you remember he came down the mountain and his face shined. And he didn't know what was going on. People were shying away from him, pulling back from him. And he didn't know what was going on. And finally, Aaron said, your, your face, it's really shining. It's really bright. Could you put this veil over your face for us? Isn't that stupid? Now, this had a spiritual uh, connotation to it. Paul talks about the, the same veil, just like Moses had to put a veil on his face. He said the same veil is over the eyes of the, uh, the Jews to keep them from seeing the light of the glorious gospel. But for Moses to have to come back down to their level, 
he had to cover his head with a sack. What a beautiful picture that shows us what salvation, of the difference that salvation creates for us over the world. So he said to Mo, uh, Moses said to God, he said, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord said, you can't see my face and live. I want you to get that, folks. Sinful man, unrighteous man, no matter how committed he is to God, no matter how God uses him, as he did with Moses. Unsaved man, unregenerate man, spiritually dead man, can't even behold the the face of the Lord without dying. So the Lord said, you can't see my face and live, but here's what I'll do. He said, I'll put you in the cleft or a crack in the rock. Here's a picture of us in, in Christ. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and put my hand over you and pass by and you can see my back parts. That's all Moses could see. That's all as close to God as Moses could get. Now remember, Moses is the one that talks face to face with God. But the glory cloud that the Lord appeared in was the only thing apparently that saved Moses' life. And you remember when he went up on the mountain the first time, part of the reason why the, the people below wanted, got Aaron to, to make the golden calf for them is because they saw the lightnings and the thunder and the fire and everything else that was happening on top of the mountain. And they said, nobody can live to that. Moses is dead. Has to be. Nobody can survive that. And so God was only able to show Moses his back parts as he passed by. He said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. Jesus talked about something similar when he gave the illustration of the wine and the wineskins. He said, you don't put new wine in old wineskins because the old wineskins will burst. The new wine will cause them to burst. And then the wine is spilled. Well, that's the same picture of the new birth. That's the illustration Jesus gave about the life of God or the presence of God, the spirit of God coming into us. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Beginning in verse 25, the prophet Ezekiel tells us, speaking firsthand for God, he tells us what to expect from the new covenant. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. The Bible says we're washed by the water of the word. So that's how he sprinkles clean water on us is through the truth of the word. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart will I also give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. He's talking about the stony heart being the dead man. The spiritually dead man. The spiritual death that passes upon all men. You remember when uh, God gave commandment to Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. He said, the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, they ate, but didn't die physically. So he couldn't have been talking about physical death. 
But as we just read over in Romans chapter 5, the sin of Adam and Eve brought death or spiritual death upon all men. Now, let's walk through this for a second, just real quickly. The wages of sin is death. What death? Not physical death. It has to be spiritual death. Spiritual death means separation from God. Life and death usually, when they're spoken of in Scripture, aren't talking about the the period of time that we're here on the earth or the period of time that we spend with God in heaven. It's talking about whether or not we are joined with God or separated from him. Spiritual death is always separation from God. Eternal life means that you're joined together with him. It doesn't just mean that we'll live forever. See, even people that are spiritually dead are going to live forever. They just live in the pit of hell and are eventually cast into the lake of fire. So eternal life doesn't speak specifically or primarily to the length of time that we're alive. It speaks to a quality of life. It speaks to a quality of life that Jesus had in himself when he was here on the earth. And he showed us the example of what that quality of life could bring. What it would look like. Well, when Adam and Eve fell, their eyes were opened. Not to the things of God, but their eyes were opened to the things of the world. Their eyes were opened to their own lack. Their eyes were opened to the fact that the light of God went out on them. Now, we talked about Moses having a veil on his face from being in the presence of God. What do you think Adam and Eve looked like? If Moses, a spiritually dead man, committed to serving God, operating as his prophet in the earth, if his face shined from spending 40 days in the presence of God, what do you think Adam and Eve looked like before they fell? Well, we see from Moses' example that the glory of God brings light upon the flesh. I don't think it is too big a jump to consider or even to assume that Adam and Eve were clothed with the glory of God before they fell. So when it says they, their eyes were opened after they sinned, their eyes were opened and they saw they were naked and they were ashamed. Well, it's not like clothes all of a sudden fell off of them. But perhaps the light went out. They'd certainly see that difference, wouldn't they? So Moses was enabled to see the back parts of God. But that's all he could see. Because regardless of the way that God used him, regardless of the miracles that he performed before Pharaoh and all the plagues and the things that were associated with that, Even though he had done all those things, he was still spiritually dead. So the prophecy is a change from spiritual death to life. And this is what Ezekiel was inspired by the Holy Ghost to say what it looked like. Let me start again in verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart will I also give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. That's what happens at the new birth. We receive a new spirit. The old dead spirit, the old dead man is removed. And he puts a new spirit within us. Now, I don't don't think anybody could really understand how exactly that happens. 
It's way above my pay grade. But this is what God said he does. A new heart will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh, meaning a heart that's tender or sensitive to God. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Now notice the the difference between or the explanation here as compared to what Jesus said about the wine and the wineskins. He has to put a new spirit within us first because if he put the Holy Spirit within us before recreating our spirit, we would die. So he gives us a new spirit first and foremost and then he puts his spirit within us. And the reason he puts his spirit within us is to enable us to walk in his statutes. To enable us to walk in his statutes. Now folks, since the law was given for one and only one purpose and that is to show that we need a savior. To show that we can't do it ourselves. We can't come to God on our, uh, on our own works or by our own works. Righteousness can't be from our works but rather it has to be from Jesus in the blood of Jesus that was spilled. It's telling us that the new birth is a spiritual change that occurs for us and for our benefit. And that is the only thing that keeps us alive and enables God's presence to enter us. This righteousness, this thing that the Bible describes as righteousness, it is the very source of eternal life. It's the source of all life. Now here's another thing that I think is worth considering. As I said, the wages of sin is death. The Bible tells us that clearly. God told Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, they didn't die physically, so we know he's not talking about physical death. The only other death there is is spiritual death. And they died spiritually that day. Well, what's the price for that? What's the payment for that? Folks, if physical death was the price of sin, then you wouldn't need a substitute. We'd just live our lives here on the earth, die physically, and then be able to go to heaven. We could die our own death, in other words. We could pay the price for our own sins if physical death was that price. But it's not. Spiritual death is that price. So folks, concerning you and me and everybody else in the world all the way back to Adam, somebody has to die spiritually for the sin they committed. If somebody didn't die spiritually, then the price has not yet been paid. And we have no hope of heaven. Somebody has to die spiritually. Well, who was that somebody? According to the Bible, it was Jesus. Now, I know a lot of people don't like that. I understand that a lot of people don't like the idea that Jesus died spiritually because spiritual death means separation from God. But remember on the cross, it seemed to be a progression of things. I think it started in the Garden of Eden the previous night where Jesus begins to sweat great drops of blood agonizing over the death that he's going to die. Now, is he agonizing over physical death? 
Jesus raised people from the dead, from physical death. I can't see why he'd be so put off by physical death. In fact, you may remember when Pilate finds out that Jesus is already dead, when Joseph of Arimathea asked for his body. Pilate's surprised that he's dead already. Jesus died quicker on the cross than the two thieves on either side of him. So we're talking about even though the, the agony of, of what he suffered was severe, we're just talking about a matter of less than 24 hours, probably closer to 12, that Jesus would have paid the price for death if physical death was that price. But he's agonizing over it. And there were many things that happened when he was on the cross. You remember the, the three hours of darkness where darkness covered the face of the earth. Well, if this is the plan of God, why has darkness covered the face of the earth? Seems to me that the angels would have been singing in heaven, rejoicing with a counter, a clock that's counting down. But even Jesus said the last words that he spoke. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Folks, that has to mean that Jesus at that point was made spiritual death. He became your substitute and mine. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Let me skip down to verse 21. For he, God, has made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteous of God in him. Now, folks, the Bible speaks of sin in two different ways. Sin is both a verb and a noun. There's the action of sin. And the words that are generally used when it talks about the action of sin mean to stumble or to miss the mark. But the word that's normally used when it talks about sin as the thing that came upon the earth because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, that word just simply means offense. So there was an offense that Jesus had to pay for, the single sin of Adam and Eve that opened the door to spiritual death upon mankind. But if that's all he paid for, then what about the sins you and I have committed? the actions of sin or the act of sinning that had to be paid for as well. The Bible said Jesus paid the price for both of them. How did he do that? Again, verse 21, it says, God made Jesus to be sin for us. Here's the all-inclusive word, the, the composite word for sin. That means the offense and also the personal transgressions. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, folks, what does it mean when it says Jesus was made to be sin? It has to mean that he died spiritually. Because if he didn't, I'll say it again, if he didn't, somebody still has to. Because the wages of sin is death. Physical death doesn't do it. If it did, we wouldn't need a Savior. We could just experience physical death for ourselves and go straight on to heaven. 
because that's where God wants us to be. The Bible says God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So if it's just physical death that has to be paid, if that's the price that has to be paid, then the will of God for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth would be accomplished through that physical death. But that's not what it means. What Jesus is drawing back from in the Garden of Gethsemane is the pain and the suffering and the agony of spiritual death, of being separated from his father. Now, the Bible says Jesus was the first begotten from the dead. First begotten from what death? Physical death? Jesus wasn't the first person raised from physical death. Jesus raised Lazarus from physical death. There are times in the Old Testament where it talked about people who were raised from the dead. You remember the story when they're burying the fellow and they see a, a, a scouting party of their enemies. There's just a, a couple of fellows couple of men that are taking him out to be buried in the wilderness they see a scouting party so they throw him into a cave and start running back to their camp or whatever but the cave that they happened to throw him in was Elisha's cave and so when the dead body of the the friend came in contact with the bones of Elisha he was raised from the dead and came out of the tomb he came out of the grave Now, I envision this happening in a lot of different ways. But if he comes out of that cave and sees his friends running away, becomes aware of the same enemy scouting party and starts running to catch up with them, that might have added an extra gear to the two guys out in front. (laughs) But Jesus wasn't the first person raised from physical death. So where it says he was first begotten from the dead, it can't be talking about physical death. Well, there's only two deaths, physical and spiritual. So if Jesus was born again, if he was the first begotten from the dead, that means he had to be born again, just like you and I had to be born again. Now, that has to be true if he was made to be sin. Now, folks, God doesn't cut corners. God doesn't make things up as he goes. God doesn't wink at Jesus and say, well, we'll just let that count. He had to pay the price. He had to legitimately, legally pay the price. And when he paid the price, the life of God came back upon him, within him. And he was born again from spiritual death. Psalm 77 gives us some information about what he suffered when he was spiritually dead. The price that he paid. It's the story of Jonah. And some of the things that Jonah experienced in the belly of the fish. That are used as the illustration for what Jesus experienced in the place of the spiritually dead. Now, again, like I said, I know a lot of people don't like this. And I understand their hesitation, their resistance to it. We don't like to think of the fact that Jesus, if he died spiritually, went to the lowest place of hell 
and suffered the real punishment for sin and spiritual death. We don't like to think that. But it's what the Bible says. If Jesus was made sin, if Jesus died the death of the spiritually dead, which he had to so that you and I not experience it ourselves, if he experienced that, then that means he had to pay every minute, every second of the awful price that was necessary to cause you and I to come into salvation or to enable us to come into salvation. So the life of God comes back into Jesus. God said, it's enough, it's finished, the work is done. Then Jesus becomes the firstborn from the dead, from the spiritually dead. And folks, that would be the only reason that you and I would not have to experience spiritual death for ourselves. Verse 15 of that same second chapter of Corinthians, that same fifth chapter of second Corinthians. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. The word reconciled here means a, a mutual change or exchange. In other words, it means something that was in one condition was made another condition. And we who were in the other condition were made his condition. God has reconciled us to himself. An exchange was made to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Paul talks about reconciliation again and again and again. He's making the point. He's trying to prove the point. An exchange was made. Now, folks, why is he spending so much time with the Corinthians talking about exchange? I think there's a lot of things for us to learn when we recognize the surrounding circumstances behind the letters that Paul wrote. For example, we know that Paul went to certain places and he would stay anywhere from the period of time three months to three and a half years. Three months was in Thessalonians, the Thessalonian church. And three and a half years he spent with the Ephesian church. Everything else that we see that he experienced was somewhere between those two time periods, some amount of time between those two. How can you get a church established in three years or in three months? What would Paul have had to preach? Or what was his doctrine? What was his pattern of preaching in the churches that he went to? We don't have any indication that Paul knew exactly how long he'd be wherever he went. We also know as far as the Romans are concerned, Paul said, I wanted to come to you, but I was hindered by the devil from doing so. And because he was hindered from doing so, from being there, he wasn't the author or the father of the churches in Rome. He was probably the spiritual grandfather of those churches because people that were saved and developed in his ministry were the ones that started the churches in Rome. But the fact that Paul had not been there himself necessitated, at least in his mind, 
certainly in the mind of the Holy Ghost, the need for him to put his doctrine down on paper in a form unlike any of the other letters that he wrote. Since Paul wasn't sure, and there was no way to be sure, that they had received all the things that he would have taught them had he been there himself, he had to send it to them in a letter. Paul talks of righteousness, uses the word righteousness 33 times in the book of Romans. Nothing else is even close. In both letters to the Corinthians, it's six times. But the Corinthian church, which is a church that's filled with sin, they've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, just like every person who accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But to the Corinthians, more so than anybody else, he talks about reconciliation. He talks about the exchange. Now, why would he write to the Corinthians about the exchange more than anybody else? Because they need to focus on the fact that the exchange was made so that they can come out of the sin that they're, in, that they're held in bondage by. Even though they're saved, even though they're filled with the Holy Ghost. They've got all the gifts of the Spirit in operation in their church. Paul said, you come behind in no good gift. So they've got all the working of the Holy Ghost, all the power of the Holy Ghost in their midst. Yet themselves, they themselves, as individual believers, are still struggling and stumbling over sin. So what does Paul tell them? What does he write to them about so that they can be free? Reconciliation. The exchange. Again, verse 19, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling or exchanging the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. He said, we're here to preach and teach you that the exchange was made. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead that you be reconciled unto God. In other words, live according to the exchange. And here's the exchange, verse 21. For he, God, has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Notice what Paul does not tell the Corinthians. He does not tell them that if they continue on this same path, then they're going to lose favor with God or lose their salvation. He doesn't tell them that they're not really saved. He says the sin that's named among you should not be named even among the world. But he doesn't tell them that they're not righteous. He doesn't tell them about losing their righteousness. He doesn't identify himself or identify the righteousness of God as anything that comes and goes. He simply says recognize the exchange that was made so that you can live above the world. Now folks, do you remember where we started Romans 5, 17. They that receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by Jesus Christ. He's telling them, here's how to reign. He's telling them, this is the way you reign in life. How do you reign in life for it? You can't enhance it. You can't increase it. It's who you are because of the new birth. It's who you are 
And nothing you ever do will overcome that. Nothing you ever do will change that. Now, Paul, in preaching these things, said both to the Romans, the Corinthians, and the Galatians, he said something to this effect. I know how this sounds. I know how some people take this. Some people take this as we should just go do whatever we want to, sinful or not, doesn't matter because we've been made righteous. And each time Paul answers the same way, God forbid. God forbid. But he's talking to sinful people in the Corinthian letters. He's talking to sinful people that don't seem to even really be trying to get out of sin. And to them, he tells them. To them, he identifies. You've been made righteous. Folks, the taking hold of righteousness is coming to a place where you desire because of what God did. Where you desire to show forth the life of God. Not look for an excuse not to live it. Not to look for some excuse to keep on doing the wrong things. Now turn with me over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Notice verses 16 and 17. Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the good news of Jesus. What's the good news of Jesus? Jesus made an exchange with the world. He was made to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the good news. The good news is the exchange is made. The good news is the price has been paid. You don't have to pay your own price. You don't have to suffer spiritual death. You don't have to suffer eternity separated from God. That's the good news of Jesus. He did it for you. All we have to do is accept it by faith. So he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. This word salvation is an all-inclusive term. You remember we've read from um, the Schofield Bible. Dr. Schofield was considered to be the greatest of the fundamental theologians in uh, generation past. And he writes in his notes on this verse in Romans 1.16 that salvation is an all-inclusive term. Whenever salvation is used in Scripture, it's an all-inclusive term that means to rescue, to deliver, to make safe, to make sound, and to heal or make whole. Now, folks, that's pretty good for Baptist theology or from a Baptist theologian. He recognized, even though he didn't preach it, he didn't preach healing, didn't believe in healing for everybody from uh, everything that I've ever gotten a hold of concerning him and his life. But he knew that's what the word meant. It's an all-inclusive term. Jesus just didn't die to pay the price for your sins. He died to pay the price for all of the works of the devil that came on the earth because of sin. And he shows us through his own earthly ministry that that includes sickness and disease. For I'm not afraid, ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Notice verse 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. For therein, in the word of God, through the exchange Jesus made. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now I want you to draw your attention to that last phrase. For it is written, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. 
The just shall live by faith. As I said before, the word just and the word righteous are synonymous. They mean exactly the same thing. The righteousness, the righteous have been made just before God. The just have been made righteous before God. They mean exactly the same thing. And here's what Paul says. He says, the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now let me try to sum this up. We know in Romans 5, 17 that God intends for everyone that's been born again, everyone that's received the finished work of Jesus, everyone that's received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, every person born into the family of God is intended to reign in in Jesus Christ, to reign in this life, to reign over the works of the devil, to reign over sin, to reign over temptation, to reign in life, to rule in life. That's God's plan. That's God's purpose. That's God's will, right? Can't be any other way if the Bible's true. We know that Jesus was made sin to, made to be sin for us. He had to if he was our savior, if he was our champion, if he was our substitute. He had to be. And so now the Bible says that the just or the righteous shall live by faith. That taking hold of or that seizing on to righteousness that brings us to the place of authority where we can rule and reign in life. That taking hold of righteousness is identified right here in this verse. The just, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, what does that mean? Live by faith. I think it means a lot of different things to different people. I've had people come to me, want me to pray for the healing and things like that. And I'll ask them. I'll always search for faith. It's the first thing Jesus did at any crowd he went to. He searched for faith. Sometimes he found it and he could bring healing or deliverance to them, whatever they came for. Other times he couldn't find it and he couldn't. In his own hometown of Nazareth, the Bible says in Mark 6, 5, Jesus could there do no mighty work. It didn't say he wouldn't. It says he couldn't. And it's an accurate translation. He could there do no mighty work. He didn't have any blind eyes opened in Nazareth. He didn't have any lepers that were cleansed, any cripples that were healed. He could there do in Nazareth no mighty work, save or accept that he laid his hands on a few sickly folks and healed them, a few folks with minor ailments that didn't have much wrong with them. And then the next verse, Mark 6, 6, says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. Now, why was Jesus withheld? Or unable to do anything in Nazareth as far as a big miracle or healing or something like that. The Bible tells us it was because of their unbelief. Now if unbelief hindered Jesus who had the spirit of God without measure in his day. What will unbelief do for us? Will it not hinder the power of God for us to operate through us too? Well if not we're greater than Jesus. And of course we're not. So I've had people, when I look for faith, trying to find out what they're believing for or what they're standing on as the basis of their belief. I've had people talk about, well, I believe God. Well, that sounds great, but what does that mean to you? We can use the words. We can make the words sound right. We can use our, the, the church phrases. 
But that doesn't mean we're believing the right thing. So I'll ask people, what does that mean? What does living by faith mean? Well, I, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. That's great. That's half of what you need to do to get saved. But what does that mean to you? Now, folks, you've got to realize a lot of people, when I start trying to pin them down to, to identify what can we pray for or what basis can we use for our prayer, a lot of people just quit. A lot of people just give up and walk away. But the more and more I press people trying to find out what do you really believe? What are you after? I could tell them what scripture they need to believe, but that would be me, not them. And I'm not going to get results that way. God doesn't heal you because of what I believe. God will heal you because of what you believe. So I'll ask further, what does that mean? Well, I, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's great. That's halfway to salvation. Very few ever get to the place that really makes a difference for them. So I have to try to give them scripture and get them to agree with it in a hope for getting them results. But folks, what did Paul mean? What did the Holy Spirit mean when he talked about the just shall live by faith? What does that mean? Folks, the things that you live by, the faith that you live by are the things that you speak from your mouth because of the belief that you have in your heart. That's how Jesus defined faith. He said, have faith in God, for verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Jesus defined faith as believing in the heart and saying with your mouth. Now, if that's what faith is, if that's what Jesus told us faith is, then what does the just or the righteous living by faith mean? It means we'll live by whatever we believe in our heart and say with our mouth. How do we take hold of righteousness? To bring us to a place where we reign in life? We've got to speak righteousness. We've got to meditate on what righteousness is. What the Bible tells us righteousness will do. And, and we've noticed several scriptures throughout this morning's service. We've noticed several scriptures that identify that righteousness is the foundation. Righteousness is the bedrock for receiving anything and everything of the kingdom of God. It's what brings us to a place of authority. It, it's what enables us to reign in life. It is the bedrock. Well, Pastor Mike, I believe I'm made righteous. We've been listening to you preach and talk about these scriptures forever. That's great. There are some things, however, that we... Let me say it this way. There's a difference in passive faith or passive believing and active faith or active believing. You can generally believe that Jesus died for your sins and not even come into salvation. You can generally believe that Jesus paid the price for sickness and never received healing. As long as your faith is passive, well, yeah, Jesus did a lot of good things. Yeah. He wants us to be saved. Yeah. But there's an aggressiveness to faith. Jesus said the violent take it by force. 
Now, that doesn't mean he wants us to be violent. He wants us to be active and aggressive against the works of the devil so that we rule and reign over them. So where is your faith concerning righteousness? Isn't it coincidental? Isn't it suspect that the devil uses unrighteousness against all of us probably more than any other thing? In the Old Testament, they were made aware by every part of their life, every day of their life, that they couldn't make it to God on their own. Well, if that's what God wanted them to be conscious of under the old covenant, waiting for the new covenant where he could live and and walk on the inside of us, then if unrighteousness was the thing that they major on every day of their lives, what should we major on under the new covenant every day of our lives? Righteousness is the foundation. It's the bedrock for everything Jesus did for us. This salvation is an all-inclusive term. This salvation comes by being made righteous by the blood of Jesus. There may be, well, I'll say it this way. I may stumble through my flesh into sin. I may miss the mark through my actions, but I will never yield to unrighteousness. Do you know what I mean by that? Paul described his own situation as falling into sin, stumbling into sin. He said, I do things that my heart despises. My flesh does things, leads me into things that my heart despises. He's talking about the difference between the real man on the inside that's been made righteous by the blood of Jesus and the sin that's in his flesh that pulls him away. But he comes to the point, comes to the realization that there's no condemnation to them that live in Christ Jesus. Even though they may be doing sinful things. Even though they may be stumbling and maybe missing the mark. Paul comes to the place where he identifies, I've been set free. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Even though my flesh stumbles even though my flesh causes me to miss the mark what's he saying he's saying the action the sinful action the unrighteous action of my flesh can never take me out of being the righteousness of God in Christ so I stumble over sin I may miss the mark but I will never yield to unrighteousness you know the way I found that to be most effective By confessing, meditating on and confessing every day of my life that I am the righteousness of God in Christ. The more I talk righteousness, the more aware I am of it. The more I confess righteousness, the more aware I am of the power that God has given me to overcome sin. The more I confess righteousness, confess myself as the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, the less I stumble, the less I miss the mark. Now, is there any change in me? There's a change in my awareness of who I am. Am I more righteous because I confess it? No. I'm just more aware of it. I've become more and more aware that righteousness, which came as a free gift, is the foundation for everything that God provided for us through Jesus. And the more I become aware of what belongs to me, 
the more I walk in it. And the more infrequent stumbling and missing the mark becomes. The just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by believing in their heart and saying with their mouth. The righteous shall live by believing in their heart and saying with their mouth. You'll have what you say. And what you say, what you meditate on, what you confess will become stronger and stronger and stronger. It'll take root and it'll grow. Again, righteousness doesn't grow. But our confidence does. Our awareness does. In John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews, came to Jesus and said, We know you come from God, because no man could do these miracles that you do, except God be with it. Jesus immediately begins telling him about being born again. Now, did Jesus ignore his statement? If so, it's the first time he ever did. Jesus says you must be born again. Then Nicodemus starts trying to argue with Jesus because he doesn't understand the born again concept. He says, shall I enter into my mother's womb a second time and be born? And Jesus said, no, that's not it. Except a man be born of water, natural birth, and of the spirit, the new birth, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. What's he saying? He's saying, except you be made righteous, you cannot take hold of the things of God's kingdom. You can't take hold of the power of God which is what drew Nicodemus in the first place. You can't take hold of anything without the new birth. Why is the new birth so important? Because that's the, the point in time that we become righteous, that we establish the foundation of our lives, that if we pursue the things that Jesus taught us, if we pursue what Paul told us by the Holy Ghost, will bring us to a place of ruling and reigning in our lives. doesn't mean we won't have any more trouble with the devil. It means we'll always win. You do realize that any faith battle we lose to the devil, God intended for us to win. You do realize that God never intends for you to lose any faith battle, ever, because you've been made right with him, you've become part of his family. If we fail, if we miss it, if we reject our victory, it's on us, not him. Because he's given us everything that we need to rule and reign in this life. Let's all stand. I want you to make a confession with me. Is that all right? Say this after me. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am a part of God's family. Jesus was made sin for me. And I was made the righteousness of God. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. And every tongue that rises against me in judgment, I condemn. This is my inheritance. And my righteousness is of God. I may stumble. I may miss the mark. But I will never yield to unrighteousness because Jesus has made me righteous. 
Folks, if that ever dawns on us, we'll become world changers. Let's lift our hands and thank you. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. Thank you that we are righteous by the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that even when we stumble, even when we miss the mark, there's no condemnation to us. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I will always be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And I've been given authority to reign on this earth in my life. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 Bless you, Lord Jesus. Well, say it with me. Jesus is my righteousness. And I am righteous in him. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being.